Hey guys, welcome back to the Animator Guild podcast, where we talk about the creative process, respond to audience questions, and explore big ideas which cannot fit into ordinary YouTube videos. This episode is centered around the topic of when to use animation and when to not use animation. To me, this is an important topic for a range of animators and filmmakers. Zachary Sparrow is an up-and-coming animator, writer, and graphic novelist. He is well known in the Animator Guild community where he is a moderator. During our time as friends in the community Discord, we've had many interesting conversations ranging from films and animation to history and politics. Although for the conversation you're about to hear, we have tried our hardest to avoid straying into politics. Instead, we focus on the tactical advantages and the fundamental differences of animation versus live action film. I hope you enjoy my discussion with Zachary Sparrow. So, what was the title we agreed on? When to use animation. When to use animation. When to use animation. You see, Mm. we had been talking about this before. And I think that with animation and when to use it, the answer, we could talk about it for a long time. Because I think that animation can deal with any subject, period. So whether or not you would want to use live action or animation is an aesthetic choice. It's a filmmaking choice. And it does have consequences. But I think it's important to remember that any subject matter can be done through animation. Yeah, it's extremely versatile. It's more versatile than film. So I guess we should, like, the closest neighbor to animation is probably film and or art, you know, like uh, paintings and pictures. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's almost like at the crossroads between the two. It has elements of both. Right? I... I think of it particularly as film. I think of myself as a filmmaker and I think of animators as filmmakers a little bit. I feel like it's, to me, it seems a little bit closer to film than it is to to art, you know, conventional art. And the difference, so the difference there between live action film and animation that I can see is that with with live action film, there's it requires a slightly less slightly less of a leap in one's imagination to get there Mm -hmm. because we are being presented with realistic light realistic rendering i guess you could say and that is similar to what we see every day when we open Mm -hmm. our eyes it's like we're looking through someone else's eyes compared to animation which can also be made to look like that but by default it doesn't by default Mm -hmm. it looks like uh, a construction a constructed image and so mm-hmm. it just requires a little bit more imagination on the part of the viewer to mm-hmm. to make that jump um they mm-hmm. say that now i i don't want to get controversial here and just remember guys i am an animator and i'm all for animation <laughs> there is a point of view that children like animation one of the theories of that is that children have good imaginations and they make that leap very easily i personally think that it's actually a very small leap to make especially if you make animation that has that follows realism in some kind of way or follows some kind of logic but anyway so one of the advantages of film that i've noticed is that you can use it to make it appear like it's the truth or like it's very real and valid and one such example that I thought of was Waltz with Bashir, which is an animated film. I think it was released in 2004 by Ari Fulman, who's the director. And it's an amazing film. You should all see it. Yeah, it's a great film. Really iconic, I think. Well, maybe iconic is the wrong word. Like, it's it's recognizable. It's distinctive. And it's a sort of... It's, a fil- it's an animated film, which is not necessarily for kids it's it's more of a sort of adult audience that it's aiming towards i would say and deals with very adult issues war and politics and things but i just remember in 
uh, one of the last scenes of the film, he switches from animation to live action. And when asked why he did that, he he said that the entire animation, it, it was an animation about a real event. The massacre that the film was kind of talking about, that was at the center of this story, he wanted people to make sure that they didn't, he, he wanted to make sure that it was seen as a real event that actually happened. And so he used real footage from, from real documentary footage about it to kind of hit that point home, that it was a real event. Yeah, and I think that was the most powerful moment in the film. But it's interesting because, I mean, yes, I think that, that film, live action film is a medium that can create the illusion of realism very well and better than animation. But I think it's important to also remember that any film you make, whether it's um, a drama or a documentary in live action, you're still recording something from a particular point of view. There's a way in which, like, you know, the cinematography choices or how you edit it or what music you use is all going to tell a particular story. And so, like, you think about, like, watching a documentary and you think, like, hey, look, this this is objective truth. This is th these are facts, but it's all filtered through the point of view of a filmmaker. And I think that what's interesting about animated documentaries is that like the the veil is just like un, uh, like unlifted and you see oh wait a minute i'm seeing a filmmaker's perspective and so in a way animation is being a little bit more open and honest when it's used in a documentary form because it's like going purely into the subjective viewpoint there's no hiding the fact that it's a construction yeah, I think Michel Gondry like talked about that in the uh, introduction to his um, animated interview with Noam Chomsky. Mm. He, he touched on that point. I thought, ah, I should take note about that. But yeah, I mean, like, so yeah, animation can just go completely into that direction. But I would also make the argument that for certain types of acting, animation is really good at creating a better illusion of reality than live action is. And my example would be look at Miyazaki's children's films. And like he Miyazaki is like a filmmaker who's really really well known for his fantastical settings and you know stuff like that. And people talk about his vivid imagination, which is all very true. But I think one of his greatest strengths as a filmmaker is his ability to observe the behavior of children and how they act. There's like a lot of like really eccentric motion and actions that you like never see in a film. Like if you compare like something like My Neighbor Totoro to a myriad of live action films with talented child actors, like mm. think about like the personality of like a child actor. Like typically they are very intelligent, they're precocious, they're kids with good vocabularies, they're like, <laughs> really well behaved. And so you you kind of like when you see a live action performance like often an actor will bring their personality to the screen and that's something that we love about watching films we like to see that person and we want we want to see like realism in 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 the performance and and so there's a certain type of spontaneous childlike action that i think is really hard to do but if you control that as an animator like you can get some of those little moments that you observe in life but you don't necessarily see in a staged environment on a film set, yeah. right? And so I think, like, yeah, so, like, the acting style is something that you 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 have a lot of potential with animation. It just depends on, like, how you render the characters and, like, what art style you're using. So, like, you can go, like, full-blown fantasy, but, like, authentic performances, I would argue, is a strength of the medium. Would you say that that is hyper-real? It's a sort of exaggerated realism. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak about hyperreality because I, th I think there's like that word is used for uh, a particular. I, I don't exactly know how that that term is supposed to be used, so I don't want to like right. use that word specifically. But it is a way of accentuating certain characteristics of reality and perhaps exaggeration in the same way that a theater performance is exaggerated. Like, yeah, you know, I think animation acting is closer, and especially hand-drawn animation is closer to theater acting, 
than it is live action acting because you don't necessarily get the subtlety of facial expressions. So if you want to do like a drama that's all about like subtle facial expressions, you probably don't want to make an animated film because it's just not well, the right medium. You can, for that. but it's challenging. It, it is. Yeah. It's actually you probably surprising... use CG because it's a little easier to get subtle like facial tics and changes like well, yeah, with a it, CG character. Um... It's interesting what Disney, as a as a company, and, and as a connect, collective of artists, what they did for the medium of animation. Because mm-hmm. people now think, because of Disney, people now think that animation was designed for character performance, but it's really not. Mm-hmm. It's like that's a challenge of being an animator. Like that's something to work your way up to, and it's actually a very advanced thing to be able to emote a character as if they're living and breathing and thinking but disney went straight for that and that's because at the time with film especially it was the the film industry was so centered around character performances that they had to they had to master acting for for animated characters but just going back Mm -hmm. to the the hayao miyazaki point i just wanted to show another kind of example for that because i recently watched uh laputa uh, nice. Castle in the Sky, and I mm. did notice a really nice moment that he put in there, that they put in there, when the boy who I whose name I've forgotten, he goes to play the trumpet in the morning. Yeah, mm-hmm. and he puts it to his lips, and he blows and goes, and it doesn't quite work. <laughs> and then he takes it away, he wets his lips, and then he does it. And that mm. I thought was absolute genius because in animation you wouldn't have that problem like an animated character by default does not have that problem and so Mm -hmm. they had to think of the idea of him Mm -hmm. making the mistake and then write that in now Mm -hmm. interestingly with with film the likelihood is with film that it would happen the it could happen the opposite way round, where the actor really does make that mistake, the camera is rolling, and they say, and the director says, hey, you know what, that was really good, let's keep it. <laughs> so yeah, I mean... that's really interesting to me, that, that with film, I guess that's an advantage of film, in a yeah. way that actors can make mistakes. You have far more room for improvisation yeah. for actors to ad lib to. Oh, let's point the camera over here, um, yeah. and you know, so it's far cheaper to make big acting changes than mm. it is in animation. Every single shot costs money. Yeah, in animation, and so it is. I think one of animation's greatest strengths and weaknesses that you have to plan everything, and so. That must yeah, add. That mean, must add to it the fact that it's contrived. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It, you know, and you can make that contrived performance feel very real if you know how to honestly depict your characters. If you observe from life, mm. that's very important to observe people's quirks and characteristics. It's something that I'm still trying to work on, and like not just like focus on say drawing good figure, but also like drawing a good behavior. And I, I think it, I think that could be why with Disney animators they always stress gesture drawing and observational like just quick line and a line of action sketches as opposed to like detailed rendered you know anatomically correct figures is because uh, at at a big animation studio like Disney they want their animators to observe form right yeah. and so they um, also give the advice of base a character on someone you know in real life. Yes, they often yes. say that. It, it's an old adage with writing too. Write what you know, not just like you know. Uh, so if you write based on your personal experiences and your worldview and your you know just just yeah yeah if you base your writing on personal experience, your content will be a lot richer. I do find you... that statement interesting though. Mm-hmm. Write what you know, because yes. that to me is a real paradox of a statement, because. Mm-hmm you don't have a choice there you have to write what you know because if you don't know it you can't write about it you wouldn't know it unless you're speaking in tongues you can't write (laughs) about what you don't know so yeah you know but i've heard it 
said the opposite way where like people disagree with that some writers disagree with that i think it was the writer of gray's anatomy who i've been listening to a lot of master classes and she said i like to write what i don't know because then i can research it and then that keeps the it keeps it alive for me if i can research a topic to to write it and it's an opportunity to learn well, I think that research and like like writing about something you might not know everything about in the subject so that you can get excited about research, that's wonderful and that's great. I think it's important when you look at a, at, at a saying like write what you know and distill it to its essence. It's about the emotional core and truth about what you know, about human relationships, about people, about about what your philosophy of life is and how you've lived your life and perceived things from yourself in your own emotional li- lives and, 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 and what you see in others, right? And so I think right, what you know isn't necessarily about like superficial topics. It, it's about the underlying reality of your lived experience. Yeah, I call it universal truth. Yes, absolutely. And I think some people might contest that concept, but but yes, I, I like I would agree with you. It is about finding that truth and getting that on the page. You see that sometimes with, with so when a writer doesn't write what they know, they might be like say maybe a kid who's writing about relationships and they haven't had for a cop drama experiences <laughs> or a cop drama or you know something about maybe like social issues that they haven't mm. um really experienced themselves and then there's a kind of naivety to the interactions with other people and the dialogue and and so you know that's why living your life and getting a lot of experiences is important because you need to build up that database of truth in yourself to really express something meaningful and i think that applies to fantasy and science fiction as well because at the end of the day you're still writing stories about human beings and human aspirations even if it's exaggerated and mythologized it's still about something that you value personally so yeah truth is always important Mm. All right, I like where that went, but maybe I should steer it back onto animation. I don't... <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's I'm fair. just aware, you know, I gotta make it somewhat relevant to the animators watching. I although, I think animators of all kinds need to be good storytellers. Uh, it's yes. always going to help to be able to tell a story with animation because that's the hierarchy. Uh, the hierarchy of importance is that animation is like quite low down on that and it always takes orders from the story so it doesn't matter if the animation looks great it's got to take orders from the story but anyway so i just want to talk about the difference in limitations for Mm -hmm. animation versus live action like some things in live action are really hard to do but they're really easy to do in animation and Mm -hmm. one example i had was space travel like Mm -hmm. space travel in live action film is very difficult to depict and to you know uh, zero gravity people floating around in zero gravity rockets flying to other to other planets it's easy in animation like it's it's that's an easy thing to do have a rocket taking off and going to the moon in live action that's incredibly difficult they often use miniatures i was really interested in the behind the scenes of interstellar because of how little they used cgi and how much they well they used cgi but whenever they could they used miniatures uh, a bit Mm -hmm. like in 2001 which it took a lot of influence from but the opposite is also true so in animation I always think character performances are really hard in animation. It's tough to do character performances, but they're pretty easy in live action. Kind of like we've already talked about with improvising and things like that. So really it's, it's about the different mediums have strengths and weaknesses. You want to kind of when you can you want to avoid the strength uh, avoid the weaknesses and go to the strengths one more thing that i found very difficult when i had to do it in 2d animation was a ship at sea in the waves in the storm and i found that really tough so there are certain quirky things like that that are kind of difficult in animation so 
I have a counterpoint to everything you just said. Ooh. I think that, yes, it's difficult, but everything in animation is difficult. So I think we should look at the end result of the thing itself. Because think about it. Interstellar, I haven't seen it, but I know Christopher Nolan is an amazing filmmaker. And I trust you when you say that that movie looks great. And think about how many people say, oh, I wish there were more practical effects in the movies. Like people talk about like Mad Max Fury Road is an example of like an amazing piece of cinema because of all like the practical effects used, right? It's difficult to do, but the end result looks better than if they just resorted to CGI. The thing that is more difficult also leaded, led to a better, more pleasing end right? And I think the same is true of character acting. It's really tough to do in animation, but when you can get those results, animation can do something with character acting that you can't do with live action. And That's so true. It's I like a that... reward for, for the hard work. Exactly. And so I think, I think what you're saying is true in terms of like, if you want to, you're trying to weigh out the advantages and disadvantages of making a film and the difficulty of achieving a task is one of your considerations, then sure, I think everything you said is true. I'm an animation producer. That's why I'm an animation producer. And I think that that is a prudent decision. So as a producer, (laughs) I totally understand what you're saying. But if we jump into the theoretical for a minute and think about like an amazing auteur who could like make a perfect live action movie or perfect animated film, I think that the question comes down to on a theory level is about aesthetics. It's like, what kind of aesthetic do you want to get, right? And in my very controversial opinion, I think that I would draw a distinction between animation as technique from animation as an aesthetic and like what i mean by that is if you look at a lot of cgi heavy films like a marvel movie or something like the planet of the apes uh trilogy they have a lot of animation in them but no one ever like looks at those movies and thinks hey that's an animated movie because the animation is rendered in such a way where it's trying to look as realistic as possible and I think that the end result is something that feels like live action. And I think that the feeling of the kind of shot you're going for as a filmmaker is more important. And so that's what the audience kind of like receives, right? So I think that if you're talking about making an animated film, I'm thinking about the like making something that looks like a cartoon or something that looks really hand-drawn or hand-painted in some way. And, and uh, you know, so what is the best way to achieve those effects if you're going for that look? And so I'm really trailing off here, but... (laughs) (laughs) Keep going. But I just just wanted to make that, I I just want to make that point though, because I think that like there was a lot of controversy about the CG remake of The Lion King because Disney was trying to market it as a live action movie uh, in the same vein of their live action remakes of Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella and, and so on. But the thing is, is that every single shot in that movie is animated. It's computer generated stuff. And so from a technique standpoint, like, yeah, it's it's an animated movie. And a lot of people were upset about that marketing because people felt like it degraded and undervalued the hard work that went into creating that those shots. Right. There are a lot of gifted VFX artists who work on that movie. But filmmakers, I mean, film goers, like your average Joe went to that film and thought, oh, yeah, it's a live action Lion King. Mm, and yeah. so they felt like it was a live action movie. And, it's VFX. Um, That's the the yeah. definition of VFX is that it it seeks to be uh, it, it seeks to be seen as live action. Like it's disguising itself as live action. It wants to be photorealistic, but it's actually animated underneath. Mm-hmm. And so I would argue that the, that VFX is not animation as an art form. It's just animation as a technique. And oh, so to use yeah. a metaphor, to use like a metaphor, it would be sort of like how we understand a tomato as a fruit botanically. But in the culinary arts, yeah. in the culinary arts, tomatoes are considered vegetables because they sort of taste more like a vegetable. And I think VFX like tastes like live action and but it like in its dna it's animation and so that's sort of how i view it so 
like that's interesting i like that i, I that's an interesting idea separating the the i suppose the intended look of an mm-hmm. animation uh rather than the sort of practical means to an end uh, mm-hmm. with, with the animation yeah i think we've talked about this before and we have different views yes these animated feature films or animated series which could have been filmed they're set in ordinary environments they have ordinary characters if they're japanese then a lot of the time the characters have extraordinary colors of hair but (laughs) other than that they look pretty ordinary they're fairly down to earth and it just begs the question why did they draw this out frame by frame thousands of frames to draw this when they could have set up a camera on a tripod and hit record with mm-hmm. with actors and captured those like we were talking about improvised performances nuanced performances with ease so my point right. of view has been for the longest time if i if i'm going to make an animation i'm going to strive to make an animation that i wouldn't be able to make with live action Mm -hmm. i just wouldn't be able to film it for practical reasons or just like yeah it it just doesn't fit within the realm of the real world well i think you're thinking like a film producer which is understandable Uh, well yeah because you're thinking well this doesn't seem practical it would be far more cost i suppose yeah i am thinking practically the actors right yeah but i mean the thing is is if you look at a lot of this slice of life anime it's it's gorgeous like think about like the films of Isao Takahata like uh, a film like Only Yesterday or Grave of the Fireflies like these are movies Mm. with like no fantasy elements at all in them but there's a way in which the animation is employed beautifully like uh, have you seen Only Only Yesterday? I haven't seen Only Yesterday I've seen clips from it I've seen Grave of the Fireflies oh okay Um, I do think but I think with Takahata he's an interesting one because he usually has like one or two very like subtle small things in his films that couldn't be anim- that couldn't mm. be filmed which right. i mean arguably you could use cgi for but oh for sure yeah um, so the reason i brought up only yesterday which is a beautiful movie and you should definitely see it okay it, it, the story revolves around this woman who's about 30 and she's single and she's she's going to this countryside and as she takes this trip to this farm childhood memories occur to her when the film cuts back to the childhood memories everything is very simple and cartoony and the the backgrounds have a watercolor rendering to them and so so the backgrounds are not vivid because it's a memory and it's sort of just in the back of her mind but like when you cut to present day the characters are rendered very realistically there was a lot of attention to facial expressions um and and getting an authenticity to it it's one of the few anime films that would had pre-recorded dialogue instead of was instead of being dubbed because the animators wanted to use live action footage as reference for like trying to capture realistic facial expressions from the voice actors and and so there's this contrast between the more realistically animated characters and the more cartoony characters and that visual contrast is something where the drawings bring your attention to a particular environment or expression with uh, an extreme narrow focus right and so this story could have easily been told in live action but the entire feel and atmosphere of the film is transformed by virtue of the fact that it is animation. And so um, it's like, why would you want to do a live action uh, film adaptation of a Shakespeare play? Shakespeare wrote his plays for the theater. It, right. You know, it's made for one medium. And yet filmmakers over and over again have been trying to translate Shakespeare into films. And you do have to sort of like adjust your sensibilities when you translate Shakespeare to to the screen. But nevertheless, you can still tell those stories through film and sometimes really well, Yeah. right? But yeah, I, th- I think like to go back to what we were originally talking about, I think th- that uh, like you can tell any story of any genre in any media, especially when you consider that yeah, from a production standpoint, you have to think about like what to use for live action and what to use for animation. But like from a storytelling, aesthetic, visual standpoint, if we establish that 
if a VFX shot feels like live action, then it's in the live action medium. So, um, you know, you can tell a science fiction and fantasy story in live action or animation. It all depends about the aesthetic that you want to go for. So you're kind of coming at it from the unlimited budget uh, scenario. Yes. Because I'm the temperamental artist type, so... (laughs) (laughs) A man can dream. (laughs) Exactly. But I think we need both types of mentalities because, like, producers... We need producers in the world to remind filmmakers of the practical limitations that they're dealing with. And uh, someone who can effectively organize that is vital uh, for creating things that actually happen. So I don't want to undermine that uh, perspective i just think that if you want to get excited about storytelling possibilities it's it's good to keep that in mind that uh you're gonna have to make adjustments but you can tell any story in any medium i i very firmly i'd have to uh, fully put that to the test and really think about that Uh, i mean i'm gonna try and challenge it but i don't i i mean it sounds correct i just need to sort of think Mm -hmm. so then if we assume let's just assume that that is true so then it becomes mm-hmm. like what is right because then you've got to look at you're looking at it not from a practical point of view but from like how does this make you feel versus how does this make you feel like yeah and and that's that's pretty interesting like what is the effect of something being hand-drawn animated you know with paper i've mm-hmm. looked into this quite a lot because as a freelance animator, you know, where my the service that I sell is creating uh, custom sort of like uh, bespoke, I, I'm trying to, this is how I try to do it, is like bespoke animation for clients. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've had to think, you know, why should a client hire an animator over filming it themselves? Like, if you really want the message across, you could get your phone and record yourself saying the thing, but that's not what they want. Mm-hmm. Why do they want animation? It's really important if you're selling a service to to know, to have a very good understanding of what your strengths are, what, what it is you've got to work with. And so the kind of thing that I think of is like, okay, frame by frame animation, it's got a hundred year history. It's done traditionally on paper so it's got pencil on paper it's handcrafted and therefore it has this sort of it's been made with care you know you you have to make it with care because someone has literally drawn every frame and it's i think that's great for certain corporations to want to foster that kind of feeling and so for them that could be a reason I'm mm-hmm. thinking about it commercially now just because that is my mm-hmm. line of work. But yeah, that's my that's one of my experiences when thinking about what the intended mm-hmm. effect is of something. Well, you noticed that you said that one of the things that you want to appeal to your uh, potential clients with is the feeling of it, right? Yeah. And so that's, that's still an aesthetic decision and that kind of within the theoretical boundaries of what we're talking about right? Because at the end of the day, yeah, like if a client wants a live action commercial or an animated commercial, you know. I don't think it is entirely aesthetic. I think it has link. I think it has links, maybe invisible links to certain emotions and certain feelings as well. Like I can <clears> think that, <throat> that recent, recently I received a handwritten le- letter from someone and wow, like I was blown away. I was really like touched by it. Someone wrote I love a letter. Mail. Yeah, someone wrote a letter to me. I was like, "My God, that is I'm not worthy." <laughs> you know, you should um, get a pen pal. It's a great experience to have a pen pal. I, like, you know write, what? I've got. I've bought notes. all the stuff. I've bought a pot of ink. I've bought a, a, a book on calligraphy. I love the idea of of calligraphy and handwriting letters. I've bought the 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 wax stamp. To, to nice. oh nice. yes the whole works yeah the whole works you know and and my uh, you know w for wimshurst you know i've i've got the whole works um that is fantastic I i'll send you a letter now <laughs> but, let's be pen pals let's do it <laughs> well you know what i'm like i love the idea of it but taking the time to sit down and do it i still haven't found the time to actually learn how to do it well 
But yeah, anyway, I digress. But but that is an emotion that, you know, is linked to just paper. You know, it's an emotional connection I have with paper. So I have a question because you said that isn't aesthetics. What do you, how do you understand the term aesthetics? Because I would, I would, uh, I guess, argue that our emotional and subconscious feelings towards things is a part of an aesthetic presentation. So I, I guess we oh, should yeah, maybe, maybe it like, is. clarify yeah. like, what I mean no, by I mean, that. Yeah, that's a good point. I, maybe, maybe that does fall under aesthetics. What, okay, what wouldn't fall under aesthetics for animation? I mean, I guess the thing is, like, I. This is where we get into interesting or tricky semantic territory, right? Because I, I, because when I say animation aesthetics, I'm just talking about how it looks and feel, and everything that that look and feel implies. Okay. So that includes that includes your emotional attachment to the way in which it's presented, whether it's a say a charcoal drawing or something done yeah. digitally or watercolor, oil pastel whatever medium you're using you're going to have a certain association with that um choices of color these are all things that we have like there's like cultural associations with things like color choices right but um at the end of the day that is an aesthetic i would argue that our feelings towards things are a part of that so i don't know okay i don't know in that case that would definitely fall under aesthetics those kind of emotional associations to different mediums um Mm -hmm. when i think of aesthetics i usually think of instinctive sense of you know aesthetically pleasing what is aesthetically pleasing you know a a lily is aesthetically pleasing because of the shapes Mm. the colors and those kind of things but but a lily by itself, it doesn't communicate anything about the story. You know, if you had a story oh, about okay. a certain thing and you put in lilies, but it had nothing to do with the central themes of the story, you just thought lilies looked cool. So you, oh, you okay. decorated yeah, the yeah, frame yeah, with because... lilies, then that would not, that would be an aesthetic <laughs> choice. It wouldn't mm. have, it wouldn't go further than that. It's kind of like a surface level thing oh okay yeah see i have a totally different understanding of aesthetics because like in philosophy aesthetics is the branch of philosophy of art and right. everything that, that yes applies, yes right? it is so, yeah um yeah so like when i think about it i just think about like just artistic things in general and like yeah. every important aspect of artistic decisions so my, okay, my yeah. definition of aesthetics is very really broad in that sense so um, well yeah, yeah. I, I that's i think that's I use aesthetics like that because that seems to be how it's thought of right now. The, the most kids common these days. Yeah, like yeah. The most common time you would use the word aesthetic is like I mean I've I I've been a lifelong gym goer, like going to the gym mm-hmm. and you hear it at the gym, you know, if someone looks aesthetic, oh, yeah. it's like they are they they're in good shape. They look good. Mm-hmm that's when Mm -hmm. the word aesthetic is used there so uh i'm just thinking of just pulling from things like that for for a sort of modern day definition yeah see i i live under a rock i live (laughs) like a monk and i was social distancing before it was cool so uh it's good to know these things what what, what your average person says (laughs) um i've thought of another case study of a time where animation was used for something where it would be very difficult to use it with live action. And um, that is in the case of the Uncanny Valley. I find that Mm -hmm. very hyper-realistic animations and films struggle often with the Uncanny Valley. Visual effects, they have to navigate it so carefully and they so often get it wrong, especially during the early 2000s. There were so many problems with the uncanny valley where they they couldn't get out of the uncanny valley in vfx and they were trying to but they just didn't have the technology yet to do things like render hair and fur and subsurface scattering things like that 2d animation there is very little problem there with the uncanny valley you can sometimes encounter the uncanny valley in 2d animation with rotoscope works in fact that's probably the only time when you will and certain designs are uncanny you can design something to be uncanny and that could be an accident sometimes uh i think i've Mm -hmm. seen it with 
maybe like Sonic the Hedgehog, certain designs of that has struck me as uncanny. The Some old people, Sonic design? Uh, that is... Because what, they, they the redesigned Sonic to actually look good. I was yeah, actually thinking because, like, just before that, the cartoons. Like, okay. I, I also <laughs> met a girl in college where I said, oh, there's this really cool show. It's an anime. And she was like, anime? And she was scared. She was literally scared. And it's because she, for some reason, her uncanny valley sense was was dialed up a lot more than other people. She was more mm. sensitive to it. And she found pretty much all anime to be uncanny, which I found oh, pre- wow. pretty interesting. So that was a rare she's, case. Yeah, She's missing out. Yeah, yeah. I, was, <laughs> I think I was recommending Death Note to her. So... It's her uh, loss, okay. it really is. Well, I don't know. I think, like, stuff, like, in the shonen area, I think that's cartoon enough for me. Like, and I think for most people that would be the case. Like, I find that surprising that someone would find that too realistic. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, like, you still have simplified forms and, like, really cartoony eyes and hairstyles. Yeah. And, you know, like, it's... It, you can't mistake it for live-action footage, but... Well, uh, that's the thing. Today, it's it's when it's <laughs> close to live action. It's when it's yeah. no, what not live action. When it's close to looking real, but not quite. Yeah, and so it, and it, I, I think that yeah, anime is like pretty far removed from realism. Like even though well, characters yeah. have realistic proportions, like they're still cartoons. Yeah. Like, so um, she was a bit of an an anomaly. Most people, <laughs> it's not an yeah. issue. But that was yeah, an interesting um, case. But I think that the Uncanny Valley is still something that artists are still struggling with. Like, yeah. look at the the new Star Wars, Star Wars Nine. Like, that had some scenes with uh, a CGI Luke Skywalker and Leia, and it just did not look good. Right, like, yeah. uh, Rogue One did that too. With oh, I forget his name, but there was that character from the original movies that was in it, and just it looks so weird to see a CG human like interacting with like, yeah. live action people. It was. No, it I, it made me really uncomfortable. So even with the cutting edge technology and the best artists in the world, like we still haven't got CG human right yet. So. Yeah, yeah. I'm pretty yeah. ashamed to say it, but like I'm, if that girl that I knew back then was very sensitive to it, I'm probably quite insensitive to it. I've watched a number of films where they've had like CG replacements, and people have gone. Like, oh, wasn't it creepy that, that they had a CGI replacement there with mocap and everything? I was like, I was turned around like, well, that wasn't that wasn't real. <laughs> like with the you know with the Princess Leia shot where she turns around and she's like, hope. Yeah. And I gotta admit. I was oh like, really? Yeah. See that. that I was like, I really thought it was a different actress. I thought it was just like you know, I thought they just did someone up to look like her. Yeah, the first oh, time. Wow. And then when I watched it back, I was like, oh, yeah. But maybe it was because well, I was in the story. I don't know. To be fair, if you're watching it, like, with low res, like, if you're watching it 480p, mm. like, on a low-resolution TV or something like that, I could imagine that you could mistake that. Because, like, I've seen CGI footage that looks realistic on low resolutions. Yeah. Like, if it's, like, someone sharing a video on Facebook and it's, like it's like running at like 360p or something like that then you can maybe so that's a good if you're point. watching it on blu-ray though on a big tv yeah or on the big screen you really notice the yeah difference. like imax kind of thing um, yeah well that's yeah. A, that's a really interesting point that because they seem to keep on pushing for higher resolution which is also making the job of of the uncanny valley harder in a way yeah so mm. yeah interesting yeah. I had no, like... one case study of where they navigated that problem. Well, they didn't. Ha- they didn't have to navigate it at all. So, and and we keep on coming back to Hayao Miyazaki in this uh, episode for some reason, and and Studio Ghibli. But yeah, in Howl's Moving Castle, the main character, she goes through a lot of transformations where she is first. There's a curse put on her. Uh, where she's becomes very old and then there are some incredible scenes of character animation where she's talking she's literally talking and in front of our eyes she gets younger which is my god like that is quite astounding to watch that i was just amazed but i think that would be really hard to do in live action because of the uncanny um... valley 
I think that, uh, well, I don't know, because CGI makeup is getting really good these days, right? Like, um, uh, I don't know if you've seen The Irishman. Like, I haven't yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but, like, I've seen the trailer, and the CGI makeup is, is incredible. It in is, yeah, yeah, that's true. And so, I mean, if we have that kind of technology, then it's not too much of a stretch to imagine that they could make a live-action Sophie who's, like, aging before our eyes and, and make that convincing. What I love about... Howl's Moving Ca- the, the Howl's Moving Castle film is that her aging and de-aging is imperceptible. Like you don't notice mm-hmm. it because she just like subtly changes between cuts yeah. and it feels natural because her aging is reflecting her emotional state that you just like sort of buy into it. You don't even consciously realize, oh, wait a minute, she's aging now. Yeah. Um, so it's, so I think part of it is also the editing too, like just between cuts. And yeah. Because like, you get so involved with the story that you don't <laughs> notice it. That could be a funny way of doing it in live action. Just <laughs> cut, cut away from her, cut back and she's a girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe in live action that might not be the best kind of cut to make. You might want to, like, do CG effect. I don't know what's involved with uh, digital makeup or yeah. de-aging, but, uh, or aging and de-aging, but, but I think you could do it. And I know that a lot of fans of Howl's Moving Castle, of uh, the original book, don't really like the movie because Miyazaki strayed so far from the original story. And so, I haven't read I the that, original by Diane Diana Wynne Jones. Diana Wynne Jones is that it? It's really good. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I, I recommend it. Definitely. Check I've it read out. others um, of her books and I I I liked them a lot. But did she hmm. did, did Miyazaki did he Miyazakiify it? <laughs> Well, yeah, basically. Well, also, he was really angry with the United States and the Bush administration with their with the Iraq war. And so he decided to put an anti-war message in it. And so the whole war subplot did not exist in the book. And also, like, there was like a whole plot about like how they went to the real world. Like um, Howell in the book is from Wales. And so, yeah, there's like a bit of like dimension hopping between like the fantasy world and the real world in the book. And it's a very different story. Diana Wynne-Jones loved the movie, though. Like she said that it was great and she didn't want a literal adaptation of her story. She wanted something different. Yeah. She appreciated Miyazaki's spin on things. So that's uh, uh, that's often the the way with me. It's like I want I want the film to use it as material, but then to bring something new to the table with it i mean why not Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. yeah for sure because like why would you do an adaptation if you're not creating something that justifies the existence of an adaptation absolutely So i think that's important if you're like adapting any story uh is like what can you bring to the table and that's where the question of things like animation or live action come in right like you're adapting a novel what do you want to bring to the table? Or maybe you're making an animated remake of a live action film or a live action remake of an animated film. What are you bringing to the table? In the case of Disney movies, not much. But (laughs) I think that there could be a case for making a live action remake of an animated film that works well. Like yeah. no good examples come to mind right now, but I think (laughs) it can be done. Like I, like why not? Yeah. Yeah. If you can come up with a justification for it, then like I said, any medium, any story, it just changes the flavor and texture of, of your dish. Yeah. And you're going to get something new and exciting if you have an artist who really cares about what they're doing, right? So, yeah. It's all about possibilities, people. Exactly. Try things, experiment. Yeah. You know, so. I want to talk about transitioning because we, we've mm-hmm. talked about, like, the differences as, the, as separate entities, but... Mm-hmm. There's a lot of opportunity that seems to come about when you transition from animation to live action or or something else, you know. But I, I was thinking of one one example came to not came to mind, which was uh, Kill Bill, where the backstory of the I've forgotten her name, Oranishi. I, think. I haven't seen the movie, but yeah, uh, I haven't seen the movie, but I know which sequence you're talking. You about. know the I've, sequence. I've seen the animated part. Ah, uh, you've seen yeah. the animated part. Yeah. And they use yeah. that to as like a sort of flashback, and that mm-hmm. works really well in the film because the film itself takes so much from comic books as it is. It's so inspired yeah. by comic books and the kind of comic language. 
and then for it to be animated during the flashback it's it it works so well and he he went mm-hmm. to the best animators uh, the best artists in japan kazuta nakazawa yeah. and uh, shinya ohira who is one of my heroes but yeah so that he's was my treated... favorite animator he's your favorite animator too <laughs> yeah i love i love shinya ohira his yes. sequences are incredible yes he's one and of my the fact heroes. that they always stand out like i remember pointing out his shots before even getting into sakuga fandom it's like <laughs> oh there's that style of animation again i yeah. like i would like spot it in different films and then when I found out it was the same guy, I thought, oh, this makes so much sense, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Oh, amazing it's amazing. But was uh, the Kill Bill sequence animated at Madhouse or Studio Four Degrees? I don't know. I don't want. I don't want to go on record and say it's one thing when I I don't know for sure. So I'd have to look it up. Everybody in the comments section oh. will will attack us. Oh, get that they wrong, will. I guess. Oh. <laughs> yeah, not looking forward to that but um yeah we love you guys (laughs) yeah so with kill bill with that scene they use animation to jump back in time it's sort of like signaling it's a way of in film signaling that they're in a different time but you can also do it in different ways like you could do it for jumping about in time so you can have all the past tense stuff in animation like they do when in Kill Bill, and and I'm sure there are many other examples. Um, but you can also have it from like a film's subjective point of view, if the point of view changes from one thing to another. And then you've also got a lot of films who do it in literal terms. Like there's an animated dimension, and there's a video dimension, you know, the real dimension, like the yeah. typical stepping into a painting kind of thing. The so, Mary Poppins effects, yeah. Yeah, Mary Poppins and, and whatnot. Uh, there's, what was that film, Enchanted, was it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Enchanted. That one's good. I mean, another thing is, like, you can just, like, go to another level of abstract. If you're talking about, like, just completely engaging in a surreal, subjective experience, like... Yeah. I think uh, Pink Floyd The Wall did a really good job of that with uh, their yeah, animated sequences. You know, so, I mean, it, sometimes it's just a matter of, like, amping up the degree of abstract and intensity with your animated sequences as well. And, like, so that's something you can do. Yeah. I'm wondering if there's more we we might have missed when mm. it comes to the advantages of animation. Because I... Caricature is another one. Caricature. Okay, that's one. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, think about, like the something like the triplets of belleville like yeah one of the reasons why that movie works so well is like it plays with a lot of stereotypes yeah and accentuates accentuates those stereotypes through exaggerated caricature and it does a lot for the humor and the entire vibes of the film like you can do that with live action right and so if you want to sometimes it's just a matter of like how you render characters like i think that's how brad bird thinks about the difference between animation and live action he said that you can tell any story with either medium the reason why you would choose animation is caricature and so certainly a lot of animation filmmakers think that way so you know that's interesting yeah there are there are sort of caricatures in live action as well in performances Mm. i always think of nick cage as being a good sort of he's like a caricature (laughs) of himself like he's so you know he's he's like a living meme he's a living meme he's like he he'll always take that performance to the next level he'll go he'll go further on the performance i i happen to be a very big nick cage fan Uh, i I, i'm one of those people who loves nick cage not hates him you know you usually fall on one side do you like his bad movies like Wicker oh, Man course. and stuff like yeah. that? Oh, yeah. 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 No, th- those are my favorite Nick Cage movies. Are the, <laughs> all right. The yeah. Uh, but well, I like all no, the films he's... he's in. Yeah. No, yeah. No, he's been in some great good movies too. Like Adaptation is <laughs> fantastic. Adaptation was really good. Like, that's, that's the film which showed to me, okay, this guy might be a joke, but he's also really talented. Like, Yes. It, it takes a lot I, of skill I, I think... to do that. 
he has sort of a reputation of being a joke. I think it's just because he takes on any project. Like he did yeah. the he's yeah. in the Left Behind remake. I mean, come on, <laughs> you know. So there's a way in which, even though he's an amazing actor, he still will take on any project, and so that sort of cheapens his brand in a way. I suppose uh, it does. You know, according to some people, uh, some people's perception of him, anyway. Like, you could um, see that as different know. ways. Like you could see that as him being down to earth, or true, or, yeah, or like you know, that he's not lost his humility, you know, it's still like any opportunity I'll take it because I I like to act, you know, that kind of thing. True. <laughs> anyway, yeah, yeah, I just I just like I like Nick Cage. Yeah, he's like in a he's like an animation almost, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well Jim Carrey's another one. Yeah, like, Jim Carrey. We're talking about human cartoons, like you can't get more of a humor human cartoon than Jim Carrey. Like I don't know how you can be that plastic with your face like yeah the way he can like just distort his expressions it is quite impressive oh um, yeah yeah i feel yeah. like he's like invented new facial expressions you know <laughs> <laughs> they, they yeah trademark i mean like Jim Carrey. Uh, say what you want about the live action grinch movie it might not be a great film but i think he did a really good job in that film with being able to emote under all those layers of makeup like the fact that he was able to get those extreme expressions is kind of an impressive feat unto itself like even if the movie movie on its own isn't that great like jim carrey was still really good in that film yeah i think i i often wonder about films like ace ventura uh, like mm. the film doesn't work without him like he is no they they like sort of built a film around him and his yeah. I mean, persona. Actors are critical for movies. Uh, yeah, they are. <laughs> like uh, yeah. It's an interesting point see... though. You know, a a big uh, influence on box office numbers are mm-hmm. who is the main lead character, and yeah. animated films have often used voice actors as that kind of star power but how much of that star power translates across when there's an animated film with a with a star doing the voice acting because sometimes i've watched an animated film and then i've looked at the credits and be like oh that was a really famous actress playing that role or that was a really famous actor I think it's a waste of money, personally. I, I could be wrong, because, like, I mean, like, maybe there's something to be said about the fact that, like, I, I do talk to some people who aren't, like, as into animation as you and I are, and, like, sometimes a famous actor will convince them to watch an animated movie that they might not otherwise uh, look at. So sometimes Hollywood names can give a sense of credibility to normies, but, like... <laughs> I think that in terms of the performance, like use a famous actor if it makes sense, because you have to think about like when you're getting a voice actor, you need someone who's able to bring everything they got with just their voice. And some actors are a screen presence and you lose all that when you go to an animated film and their celebrity kind of means nothing. Right. So I like if I was directing an animated film, I would not cast based on uh star power if i could manage that i might have some stars because like i I think that for example shakespearean actors are Mm. probably a really good fit for animation because shakespearean actors put a lot of emphasis on diction in their words and the time of how they speak yeah and so because speech is so important to an actor trained in that way they can be good so casting say patrick stewart or ian mckellen i think yeah yeah i'll go ahead in that case celebrity voice actor that makes sense but sometimes nah just i don't know well it it, it seems like a bunch of marketing hype like think about all, all those dreamworks movies that had celebrity voice actors that were just garbage like shark tale like it had so many celebrity voice actors but it didn't matter that shark tale was that was funny because they that was weird because they literally had will smith's face on the fish like it was will smith's face yeah it strange that is actually uncanny valley (laughs) yeah yeah talk about uncanny valley yeah but i don't know like i think that's i think that some actors like successful actors i think that 
they often are great voice actors. I mean, Jack mm-hmm. Black absolutely killed it in Kung Fu Panda. Like, he was incredible oh, in that. I agree. And Jack I Black think he brought really all of actor. his charisma with him to that role. Like, it, it yeah. really did come across, that charisma. And um, he did a tremendous job. And I can't think of anyone else who could have done a better job, any other act, voice actor. I mean, you're right about mm-hmm. the Shakespearean, you know, anyone who can act Shakespeare has to be kind of a master of dialogue, of handling dialogue, interpreting it, thinking like, what does this strange, often cryptic sentence, how how do I like say this naturally? Very true. But with acting performances, and I'm talking about live action actors here, mm-hmm. I do think that the voice plays a very important part the way they the tone of their voice and the delivery of a line in the sound i think people off people often underplay the role of sound in an in an actor's performance and it, it's still yeah. vital how they you know the the vocals of a of an acting performance mm-hmm. well, i think with jack black too like he is a musical performer as well yeah and so he has a really iconic voice and like why it works so well for cartoons or voice acting in general like the lead character in the video game uh, brutal legend and sort of like spit that that game sort of spoofed a lot of heavy metal tropes and he was fantastic for the role no i think you're i think you're right we sometimes underestimate that i i would not if i was in charge of making a feature film an animated feature film i can't say i would be the same way about like deliberately leaving out a-list celebrities and again it's the film producer in me that just sees the practical merits of having a-list talent on there for two reasons one is that they bring they tend to bring good performances they've got a lot of experience acting and they can't get through that time without training their voice and training their line delivery so they actually they actually are good at their job when it comes to acting in them. The bad thing is that they're very expensive, very, very expensive to bring on, even for a short period of time. And But then the other good thing is that they, they pull in extra people. More people see the film, and that's a good thing. I think it was good that we, we covered voice actors because like that is an essential part about considering the animation process right is it yeah. it is i don't know if it's half of the performance but it's still significant well um, i've been saying to people that audio just audio should be treated as half it, it really is it's an audio visual experience mm-hmm. yeah there's something about good sound that just completely changes the nature of your entire film it's amazing how it elevates the perceived quality as well but yes. also how it can be used in the story as as a device, really, and mm-hmm. for immersion and experience. But yeah, the, when it really got brought to my attention, just how pivotal the sound is, was in the Animated Guild contest, Film Contest 2020, when some of the entries didn't have sound, they were just pure visuals. And I think they still worked for the story, like getting, getting across the information, but the experience was much greater i found on the ones that had good sound design yeah it immerses you in the world and like you said it elevates your production so even if you're not quite there yet as an animator you can still sort of create the illusion that you are an experienced filmmaker by good sound design sound creates all kinds of emotional responses in us yeah i know that's a writing technique as well like in Mm -hmm. right when you are taught creative writing one of the big foundations of creative writing is use all the senses what do you smell Mm -hmm. what do you see what do you hear Mm -hmm. you know what do you taste they use all of them what do you feel on your skin that kind of thing Mm -hmm. yeah for sure i think that you can overdo that but i think that's sort of uh, a matter of just uh, nuance i mean one of the wonderful things about prose is that it's not just the sensory experiences but also the intellectual ones mm. there's no better medium for getting inside somebody's head than yeah. uh, a novel because you can go through every single thought especially since like this is kind of unusual for an artist but i am a very verbal thinker like i mm. i can imagine 
visual things quite well and and I do have a vivid imagination, but a lot of my thinking is words. I think in words all the time. And so for me, like when I see a novel that goes through somebody's perspective, like that, that I see is reflective of my own thought process. All right. But evoking those sensory experiences in film is, is critical. And mm. it's sort of a combination of the sound with the visuals. If you can get that balance right, then you've got something. Yeah. Don't neglect sound design, kids. <laughs> I, I'm going to wrap it up, I think. Well, yeah. okay. Thank you, Zach, for joining me on the podcast. That was great. I, I actually really enjoyed it. And I'll probably have you on again when we get the chance. Love to come back. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Thank you very much to my supporters on Patreon who help to make these videos possible, especially Jesse Labrie, Victor Helt, and Sonia. If you are interested in supporting the creation of this podcast and the other videos on this channel, the link to my Patreon page will also be in the description. Subscribe for more and I will catch you in the next one. Goodbye.